Welcome to the Rock of Ages Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Israel Soto. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit rockofagesaog.org. In the book of Luke chapter 7, we find a very interesting story. I'm sure that once we get to it, many of you will recognize it. You've read it before, I'm sure. But it speaks about a woman who wept at the feet of Christ in the home of a Pharisee. Let's read that. I want to take from this particular passage of Scripture just for a minute this morning and speak to you of the incomparable and immeasurable love that God has for us, that forgiving God that we serve, that kind of love that's immeasurable that you and I could never find anywhere else except in Him. But let's read about this this morning if we can. Luke 7 and 36, if you will. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself. Now, please, I want us, as we read this, to pay attention as to what is happening in this house. Not only what we are reading, but the emotions involved and the events that are happening while all these things in this home He saw this and said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who it is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender who owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, here's the question. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus responds, you have judged correctly. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I have entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, Jesus said, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven and her great love has shown. As her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven... Loves little. Whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. In this story, ladies and gentlemen, I will paraphrase for the sake of time. We have the story of a woman who comes into a Pharisee's house and she brings with her an alabaster jar. And she does at that moment what no one else had done for Christ until that day. Such an impacting event that Jesus would decide to allow it written here in his book. So that you and I could learn something so very important concerning the heart of God and humanity. 
Her story is one of the most powerful stories, and I know that there are many more, but yet hers still stands out in teaching us the, what repentance and true forgiveness is in Christ. She uncovers for us as we see how she acts and responds to this moment the immeasurable kindness and grace and love that God has for you and I in this world. Now, we find this story in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but we'll stay with John today, knowing that while the others teach us one generous lesson, uh, the story of Luke is where we want to stay. All of them speak to us about this woman with the alabaster jar, and they teach us one general teaching. The teaching is that Jesus values the efforts to honor him. He does not ignore our efforts to come to him for whatever it may be. This morning as I was preaching, I told the church this morning a little bit. It looks like it's lightened up a little bit on the rain. But this morning, the rain was pretty heavy. It was difficult uh, coming out of the house, especially those of you who have children. You had to make a special effort to come out this morning. And even now, you've brought your umbrellas and you've covered up a little bit. It's cold out there and it's wet and it's dangerous as we drive. So there is effort. Let me tell you something about something as simple as that. The Lord doesn't ignore your efforts. He is aware of what you have done to come here this morning to spend time in his house of prayer. He doesn't ignore the fact that you did that extra and took that extra measure to be able to take time to make it out here into this service that you might be able to spend time in worship and in his word. But though that is a general lesson that we learn from all the gospels concerning this story, still in Luke's story, this woman's perfume alabaster jar reveals so much more. According to Luke's account, we see that a Pharisee invited Jesus to dine with him at his house. And Jesus, in his courtesy, accepts the invitation. Now, again, let's pay attention to the characters involved as well. This is a Pharisee, and this is Christ. And so this Pharisee invites Jesus to come into his house, and Jesus obliges him. But as soon as Christ gets in and begins to make himself comfortable, we're introduced to a woman. To this day, she is a woman of no name. Nobody knows anything about her, her descendants. They don't know what part of the city she lived in, how old she was, and things of that nature. We are blind. We are unknowledgeable uh, 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 of who really she is. But one thing that's very powerful is said about her, and this sets the, her position, if you will, in this whole story. What we do learn that the scriptures tell us about her is that she was a sinful woman. How powerful is that? That people might know you as someone who is lost in the city. So very important for us to always be careful with our testimonies. Some people say, I don't care what people say about me, but we should. It's important that people have a good testimony about us. And this woman was known that way. And she comes to Christ right after Christ comes in and takes his note, and his seat rather. Again, we don't know how she got into the house. There's three characters involved here now. The Pharisee, Christ, and a sinful woman. We're not told that she introduced herself, knocked on the door, and the Pharisee said, yeah, well, you might as well come in as well. 
I kind of get the notion that it might have been as like somebody going through the neighbor's house and heard that somebody of, of, of renown was there and you just simply opened the door and walked in to that neighbor's house or that stranger's house in this matter. That would be uncommon and certainly not something that you would appreciate. But yet we find that this woman was thirsty enough to meet with Christ that she made it inside to this house. And then what she does is very intriguing. He reveals a lot about her and the position she was in when she got there. Luke 7 and 38 reads, the story continues. And she stood behind him at his feet, weeping and began to water his feet with tears and wiped them with her hair. He, she kissed his feet and anointed them with perfume. Now, again, it's important to note at this moment the differences of interpretations in the room as well. We have three kinds of people, three situations, circumstances, and now we see the interpretation of each individual of what is happening in that room. First, we have the Pharisee. The Pharisee will find out that the Pharisee had a trouble processing what was going on and what this woman was doing with his invite. The audacity of this woman to walk into his house and to kneel at his guest's feet without his permission was something beyond him. He was having trouble. He began to kind of anger inside. His emotions began to take over. And then we have the woman who at this time now, she is surrendered and submerged in her moment, weeping unconsolably. And then we have Christ who has a clear picture of what is happening and what all of this really means. How many know that Jesus always knows what everything means? And so we see the Pharisee. Let's address him first. We're going to learn a little bit about him. Maybe we're going to learn why he even invited Christ into his house in the first place. He was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee and he invited Christ. And we'll learn a little bit about the Pharisees' injustice in a minute or two. But as he sees this woman at the feet of Christ, he looks at him and he begins to get emotional about it. And the Bible says that he said to himself. What does that mean to you? It means he thought. When you're telling somebody, giving somebody a testimony, he says, so what do you think? Well, I said to myself, this has got to be happening. That means you didn't verbalize it. You didn't make it audible, but you said it deep within. And the Bible says that he said to himself, criticizing Christ, he said, if this man were a prophet, he would know who it is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. This is everything inside the bosom of this man. Now, This teaches us something very important. It really tells us as he criticizes Christ concerning his own legitimacy. Why did he invite him then if he was doubtful of Christ? Why is it? Because if indeed was a prophet, he would know who it is touching him. He would know that this woman is a woman of unworthiness. He would immediately discern her sin and push her away. (coughs) From him. If I may interject just for a moment, the very attitude of this Pharisee and criticism concerning Christ 
reveals to me at least a couple of assumptions as to why he would even invite Christ into his house. He questions again Jesus' legitimacy concerning who he was. If he really was a man of God, if he really was that prophet they say he is, if he really was that worthy man that so many people now are beginning to follow, that tells us a lot about the heart of this man. Which leads us back to the fact of who he is introduced to us as. He's a Pharisee. Now, those of us who know anything about Scripture and the people, those Pharisees noted in Scripture, will know that these people were one of the most prominent people and rejectors of Christ. If there was any argument concerning the validity of Christ, it took place in the circle of Pharisees. These men were scholars in the community and leaders of significant influence over political and religious standards in the city. These men had the power to appoint kings, mayors, and priests in the synagogues. They had the authority to remove whoever it was that they wanted it would not be convenient to their politics. And that can tell you and give you an idea that those who handled the synagogues were under their order. That means that they were only allowed to preach and say things that were convenient for their political gain. Thank you. These men were students of both the Mosaic Law and the Torah. They claimed their own expertise concerning the Word. And they impressed that superiority spirit over the people. Being humble people, they submitted to their power and their authority in Jerusalem and surrounding areas. Now, if you know a little bit about Christ, we'll know in Scripture we learn that Jesus was never afraid again to face their hypocrisies. He was never afraid to declare the truth in front of the Pharisees. He always spoke to them about their misinterpretations of religious principles. And as far as the Pharisees concerned, the reason that they were enemies is because they always thought that Jesus' teachings were too loose and not aligned with what they preached. So what do we have in this house here, ladies and gentlemen? We have a sense of enemies. We have people that don't get along. So that'll tell us and ask, uh, we can, uh, ask ourselves then, why the invitation? Well, if I may suggest to you maybe a couple Maybe it was just a trap. Maybe this man allowed himself to be involved in Christian things or involved with Christ just to find something that was wrong so that he could further damage the testimony of sin, uh, of Christ uh, uh, in the city. You see, again, the Pharisees were people of political gain. They were always looking out for their self-enrichment and power. And Jesus was already beginning to take some of that. People were beginning to follow the Jesus movement. And so this man may have been smart enough to say, come into my house, will you? And we see that his demeanor is automatically seen. When he sees something wrong, he says, ha ha, there you go. If this man was truly Jesus, if this man was truly the Son of God, if this man was truly a prophet, if he was truly worthy of being followed, he would know what kind of trash is touching him. But ah, you know, sadly enough, ladies and gentlemen, in this world we have people with that profession. We're always trying to find something negative to say about Christ. 
Someone who is always trying to find some flaw in the church. Oh, it's always about money. Oh, what's all this thing about church and church and church and church? Always trying to find something to criticize. Trying to get into a prayer circle, not to see Jesus do something, but to see if he does something or not. Because if he doesn't, there you know, he is a powerless God. And that exists in our world today. We have people discrediting Christ in every way they can. They're setting up traps. You see it over social media more and more. More and more they're showing how a pastor is caught praying for someone. Nothing happens. How a prophet is saying something that's not even close. Now I'm not saying that false prophets and pastors with no power or faith in Christ don't exist. I'm sure they do. But the purpose behind it is not to expose one particular individual. The purpose Involved is to damage the whole message. Are you following me this morning? So that could be one reason that the Pharisee invited Christ in. May I suggest to you another? Maybe he invited Christ in for political gain. Again, I say to you, the Pharisees were, were people of great position in the city. The Sadducees. These people, again, were great governments in the city. And so now Jesus is becoming somewhat of a celebrity. People are following him and abandoning the synagogues and abandoning the teachings that the Romans only agreed to speak on. And so this man maybe thought in his mind, since Jesus is a certain celebrity and he stands for good morals, maybe I'll have him over in my house. That way people can see that I'm a man of morals, that I'm of good standing as well. You know, I was thinking as I was writing this down and preparing this message for us this morning. I find it quite funny that normally pastors and, and people uh, of the cloth, as we say, clergy, aren't very popular in this city, very much so. And certainly not in governmental offices. I have a lot of friends. I have a lot of people, a lot of acquaintances I have. Uh, I have ministered to many uh, people in political positions and, and uh, mayors and attorneys and people like that have known me after the past 35, 40 years of ministry that I've met. I've either married their children or buried their, their loved ones and I've prayed for their commencing offices and, and, and uh, services to the city. So I know a lot of people, but I've noticed that during the year, normally that kind of friendship is forgotten except during one season. And that is during political races. Amen? During political races. During political races, every pastor is a celebrity. Hey, Reverend. You may be sitting here in shorts and t-shirt, just cutting your lawn and whatever. Reverend. And they'll come and greet you. And, and how are you doing? And oh, it's good to see you. Is there anything I can do for you? How's everything at the church? Oh, it looks really good. A lot of people go there. It's, I've heard a lot of good things about your ministry. Well, thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Anything. Listen, I'd like to visit you sometime. You know, I'm coming up for the 13th court. <clears throat> I mean, maybe you'll give me a little chance just to, I mean, address the community just to love on them. And what is that for? Those of you who know me know I've never had anybody of a political position, not because I'm considering them ungodly. I will have a Christian man if he comes, and he truly is. 
but not for political gain. This is not, this pulpit is not for that. But because if someone does that, you see, society will see that he's rubbed shoulders somehow with Jesus. As somehow he's had, he's been with Jesus. He's been rubbing shoulders with Christian people in the community. Therefore, I am the person you need in that particular office. Remember me. I came to church. So maybe that might be a reason why this Pharisee would think of inviting Christ to his house. But he had no desire in his heart to really involve himself with a relationship with him. There were obviously other reasons. Let us never come into the house of God for other reasons. If not to meet him. Did you know that Christ knows our every thought? Please notice, let me remind you what we hear. He said to himself, and immediately after that, it says, and Jesus said to him. Now, the fact that Jesus knows our every thought can be a wonderful thing and yet a very frightful thing. Amen? The fact that Jesus knows our thoughts can be a very wonderful thing. If you're good and you're morally upright and you love him and your mind is filled with praises and good things and good desires and love for people, it's a great thing that Jesus be all over your thoughts. <coughs> but what if you're not? 1 Corinthians 3 and 19, For the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Hmm. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. There is no thought that escapes the knowledge of God. He knows our hearts. He knows our true intentions. He knows exactly where we're at this morning. There is no hiding. There is no facade. There's nothing thick enough to keep us from the eyesight and the knowledge of God. And so we see... Another thing now, as we look at Christ, we see the Pharisee haven't invited him. We see possibly that his motives were self-gaining. But now we see maybe the motive of Christ for having accepted that invitation. I believe the simple fact that Jesus knew why he was invited tells us why Jesus accepted if Jesus knew already what Simon's thoughts were in having him come to his house and Jesus ex accepted that invitation, knowing what his thoughts were, that'll tell you a lot about Jesus. So why would Jesus accept that invitation to sit with this man? Very simply, I could tell you, ladies and gentlemen, because I know the heart of my Savior. He was there to give Simon a chance for repentance. He was there even to give this Pharisee an opportunity to change his mind. He was there to love on him. He was there to show him. You think Simon may have not thought, oh, why did he say that to me? He must have heard what I said in my mind, in my heart. And if God knew exactly what his motivations were to invite him and accepted What was his response going to be now? Jesus was there, ladies and gentlemen, why this, while this Pharisee was there to 
fight for some political gain or self-gaining position for himself. Jesus was there to fight for his soul. Was there to give him an opportunity for repentance and pardon. Jesus turned to the woman. He said, you see this? I want you to compare what she's done and what you're doing. You've done nothing of the sort. While she has wept, while she has anointed my feet, you've done nothing. You've not even given me a glass of water to wash my feet. Exposing the heart of Simon. I imagine as the host, what could you feel when someone knows exactly how you're feeling or what you're thinking? That was a great opportunity, though we are not told in Scripture. That Simon would say, you know, you're right. I didn't think about that. I'm sorry. I invited you to my house. How rude of me that I would not even honor you in any way. And yet this woman, a nobody, someone I considered trash in this city, would come and put me in my place when it comes to adoration and seeking you. He had to have learned that day that Jesus was not there to find some particular office in the White House in Rome. He was not trying to earn for himself some kind of celebrity position. Or now that he hangs around with all, those, all those, uh, the Pharisee celebrities of the city. Now maybe even the Pharisees can push my ministry so that more people can believe in Jesus. It wasn't about that for Christ. He was there for the heart of Simon. And certainly there, as we will see, for the heart of this woman. The Bible says of this woman that. Now we speak about her, that when she came to Christ, she didn't approach him face to face. Let me just say that what she teaches us in this passage, in this experience with her, teaches us a lot, ladies and gentlemen, about receiving the immeasurable pardon and love of God. I believe that there's something that this world cries out for today is indeed forgiveness. There are people in this world who are walking around with all kinds of guilt, and the world is doing a great job in condemning people. Sometimes we even see it in our churches. Sometimes we make it so impossible for people to come to Christ that the only option you have is to walk away still feeling out, unincluded and unworthy. But that's not the message of Christ, ladies and gentlemen. He's an all-inclusive Savior. Even here this morning today, because you've made the effort, God will honor your effort, and he will bless you if you will seek him earnestly. So this woman teaches us something very, very important. If we truly understood, ladies and gentlemen, the meaning of this story, we would all weep and be humbled by the Lord's goodness. It teaches us so much about sacrifice and pardon, forgiveness, love, and true freedom. She teaches us on repentance, what genuine repentance is. Let me explain that to you just for the next few minutes and I will finish this morning. The first thing that we can learn from this woman, mind you, she is the one that was counted less than all. But she teaches us the most important lesson on how you and I can be set free from anything we might be carrying in life. However long you've been carrying it, let it be 10 years or let it be a week. It's too long. 
God always wants to set us free from the burden of sin and mistakes in our lives. So what do we have to do according to this woman with the alabaster jar? Number one, that genuine repentance comes only after a true surrender of will. True repentance and true forgiveness, the immeasurable pardon of God, the love of God will flood over us the moment we understand that we need to surrender our will, our complete will. That is the I can part of us. The I will survive on my own part of us. The out of sufficient, the self-righteous part of us that says, you know, I can make it. I'm a man. I'm strong enough. I've gone through things in my life, but I don't need anybody. I can make it on my own. The simple fact that she went behind Christ reveals that to us, ladies and gentlemen. She went weeping to Christ, washing his feet with, with her tears and wiping his feet with her hair. Not standing in front of him, but behind him. And that reveals a lot about her position of heart. Her approach to Christ from behind him obviously shows us that this woman had released any sense of pride, entitlement, self-importance, self-dependence in herself. She surrendered everything about her self-will. She was at a place in her life where she knew that nothing in her life was going to change with her own strength. That's the first step to true repentance and finding God's freedom. That you and I have to get to a point, ladies and gentlemen, young people, listen to me. We have to get to a point where we understand that there's nothing we can do to change our circumstance when it comes to sin and stains in our heart. The Bible tells us in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 23, I believe it speaks to us. There's a very intriguing question. He said, can the Ethiopian change the tone of his skin? Or can a leopard change the spots on his skin? And the answer to that is obvious, ladies and gentlemen, they can't. We cannot. We cannot change anything. We cannot add a single hair to our heads. We can't. And until we recognize that, we'll never be able to come to God in true repentance because we'll always have that sense of I will and I can. There's an illustration or it's actually a fact that anyone who is training as a lifeguard, you know that one of the first lessons that a lifeguard is trained and taught is to watch body language. When he's sitting on his stool, his ladder, wherever he might be, his balcony, he sees someone who is in trouble in the water and he's drowning. The first thing that they look at is not if it's a man or a woman or whatever, but they'll look at body language. They're trained to look at body language, to see and to look at the measure of resolve the victim has. Obviously, when someone just simply drops in the water, they're very strong and they begin to paddle and they begin to swing their arms and kick and do everything trying to escape that moment of, of, of tragedy in their lives. And so you would think that automatically as a lifeguard, what they do is they jump off that ladder and run to the water and jump in and go get that guy or that person and bring him out to the water. They don't do that. Sometimes it's been known that people get frustrated. Those who are looking at the lifeguard go like, do something. 
He's drowning. Do something. And they begin to criticize the lifeguard. But the lifeguard who is well trained will wait. And he will wait at the resolve of the victim. And once the victim begins to give up his self-will, at that moment he knows that he can jump in the water and bring him out. And the reason is very easy. You see someone with such a great resolve and strong trying to get me out of the water. If I was drowning, you, I can guarantee you two of us are going to drown. Because the initial response for someone who is drowning is to grab something and push it down that they might be able to come up. And no man who is out of his element, which is water. Water is not our main element. We have learned to work in it, but we cannot master it. It'll push you down. And so they keep the lifeguard safe. They said, don't you jump in because they'll have two victims. Wait until he gives up. And ladies and gentlemen, that is a great lesson for us to learn when it comes to forgiveness, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to us establishing a relationship with God. We have to know that we need it. We need to know, we need to give up our resolve and say, Lord, I've tried everything that I can to change my way of doing things, or my thoughts or my actions or my things that I keep going back to. I cannot do this, Lord. I need you. And you quit. And you quit. I was thinking of the Apostle Paul. Again, and we find him in Acts 26 as he's making his way down the Damascus Road along with some superiors with himself. And the Bible says, testifying that there came a shone of light and everyone dropped. And Paul got up not being able to see. He was now a victim instead of that person that was executing certain judgments upon the people. And he himself tells, testifies of that. And we know in that story, ladies and gentlemen, that, that from that moment, Paul now had to be taken to Ananias to be prayed for so that the scales from his eyes could be removed. He might be able to become able again. But in the midst of his trial, he hears the voice of the Lord. And the Bible says he heard a voice saying to him in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? Now, let me explain to you quickly as I move on this morning. The goads, if we look at the goads in, uh, in uh, Greek and in Roman times, a goad basically what it was was a, 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 a staff. And that staff is what the ranchers or the, the pastors, the shepherds, if you will, would use to probe uh, the sheep that they might be able to walk. And find fair uh, uh, meals and water. But there are some goats or some sheep rather. Or whatever little animal that are rebellious sometimes. And so as the shepherd probes this little animal. The animal because it's being probed. It kicks. And he kicks against the shepherd. He kicks against the guide. And soon enough after the shepherd gets after him well. He'll know that it's better to obey. And in this instance, we see the Lord telling Paul, listen, how long are you going to give up? Uh, how long will it be before you give up your resolve? I'm going to use you. I have a, a plan for you. I want to heal you. I want to set you right, but you keep arguing with me. And so he rendered him helpless. Now, let me just say this one last thing concerning lifeguards. Did you know that the second thing that lifeguards are 
are, are taught uh, as they are learning their skill is one. One, you wait and you look at body language. And you see this guy has a lot of fight in him. Wait, because he'll drown you. And the second thing, if the resolve is slowly going away, he still has a lot. And it's getting now late that he's starting to drink water but still fighting. There's a second thing that lifeguards do. You know what it is? You're going to laugh at this, but it's true. They go and knock him out. They jump in the water and they find that victim. They get to him. And they go behind him, turn him around, and punch him in the jaw. And they're taught exactly where to hit him so it will render him helpless. And then, and until then, is the victim able to be loosely taken and save him, but for his own good. Let me just say this as I say what I've just said. Let's not get to the punch out part. <laughs> Amen? How many know that God has a big hand? Come on, somebody. How many know that God has a big hand? I don't want to be punched out by God. I don't want to be knocked out. I don't want to be knocked out. I'd rather, I'm not even kick against the goat. I want to surrender. I did that enough, promise you. I did, it, I did it enough kicking against God until he taught me it was better to obey than to disobey. But I'm glad he hasn't knocked me out. I've been dazed. Anybody know about being dazed? Sometimes we're dazed, but not knocked out. But they do that, why? One purpose, because they want to save you. Lifeguards do. And if God ever does that, remember the Bible teaches us that the Lord will chastise those he loves. Amen. So give it up. Give it to God. The second thing, true repentance never cares about public opinion. Some of you need to hear this. True repentance and receiving the genuine immeasurable love of God will never care about public opinion. I can tell you today, and I'll make this quick. There are people today that will not come to the Lord to surrender what they're going through simply because of public opinion, because of the, what the parents are saying, because of the sisters and brothers are saying, because of the neighbors are saying, because people at work are saying. And these people, too, also they've learned the art of hiding behind facades and masking up, acting like they're good. But yet, too, they are lost in a world of sin. But isn't it surprising, ladies and gentlemen, that when someone in the group decides to give their life to Christ, that they're the first ones to shout, hey, where are you going? Where are you what are you doing? You're part of us. All the girls get together all the time. Can't you, I mean, where are you, church, come on. And I know about this personally, gentlemen. I was lost at one time, believe it or not. I wasn't born holy. It used to be that my profession, I was a nurse by profession, and my sport was playing clubs on the weekend musically. And my addiction was to take anything that would numb my pain inside of my heart. But one day I had to decide even though I was hiding because of public opinion, because my friend said, you're the life of the party. Don't go anywhere. Where are you going? The church? What's all this church business? Stay with us. We're all dying. I had to decide in my heart that my life was more important than public opinion. And some of us in this house, maybe today, you have to decide that yet your freedom in Christ is more important than what someone outside of you is saying about you. This woman walked in this house being criticized by the house owner and not only by him, but before then the city would criticize. Because everyone knew that she was a sinful woman. 
Everybody knew. And so you and I need to understand and decide one day, ladies and gentlemen, that we must not continue to die in our sin or in our pain or the things we need to be loosed from simply because someone said you shouldn't. You see, because no one feels the hurt you hurt. No one struggles in the middle of the night the way you struggle in the middle of the night. Nobody knew. When I came to Christ, nobody knew what was in my heart. Nobody knew what I felt. Not even my wife knew exactly what I was going through deep in my heart. I did not need her permission to come to Christ. She did not need mine to come to Christ. You don't need anybody's permission to come to Christ. You will come to Christ because your soul will cry out for salvation in him. This woman walked into this house, a dirty woman, shameful. All I know is this, how she got in this house. I don't know how she did, but she was thirsty enough. She had had enough of her life that she needed to meet with Christ on that day. She didn't care if the owner of the house was going to call her names. She didn't care as she weighed, weighed on, uh, made her way to that house. If people were saying, where are you going? You're going to the house of a Pharisee? Jesus is there. What are you doing there? You may remember blind Bartimaeus who was crying out to Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. While people around him said, hush, do not bother the man. The woman with the issue of blood, she was unclean according to the city rules, city opinion. But yet... She cried out and stretched her hand forward. She said, if I only could touch the hem of his garment. You may remember the lepers who came to Christ that day. Those people were not allowed to go into the city. And if they did, they were called and ordered of the city government to yell out, unclean, unclean, and shame themselves in the city streets. But still they came because they heard Christ was there. They didn't care. And we get, need to get to the point, every single one of us, ladies and gentlemen, to the point where we don't care about what public people say. Why so much church? Why do you go to church on Sundays? Why are you doing this? Why are you participating in the youth group? Why are you participating in the WM's group? Why are you coming to church? Why are you lifting your hands? Why? Because my soul cries for it, regardless of what your opinion is. Nobody knows your pain. Nobody knows your hurt. So important for us. First Peter, if you'll read that on your own, you'll find out that Jesus speaks to them. He said, you know, Jesus died and he died for the reason that as we die for sin, we don't have to no longer live in it. And he speaks to us and says, you know, when you move away from those things, sinful things, people around you will say, they'll be surprised because you're no longer running with them. I lost a lot of people in my life. When I came to Christ. And many, many upon many of them were surprised that I would no longer run with them in the streets the way they did. I no longer did what they did. I never entertained the things that they did. Always trying to keep you back. And finally, I close with this, ladies and gentlemen. True repentance and the true joy of the Lord will only come when we surrender everything to him. Not only self-will, but everything outside of us. The Bible tells us that she had an alabaster jar, and it was very expensive. And the reason alabaster is expensive, even so today, it's because of the process it takes to make it. It's not like anything made of clay. There's a special work that's done to it. With water and pressure, it's such a special type of stone 
It's translucent. People use it. Those people that were well off had those things, and they would put lamps in something because they're kind of thin and because they're kind of see-through. They would offer a really nice twilight light in home that it was very homey, if you will, very setting. But she had that. And we're told that an alabaster jar such as she may have had would have been, at least for people of that time, a year's salary. And she came. The moment she took the seal off that bottle, all the anointing was spilled out. And what does that teach us this morning, ladies and gentlemen? It teaches us that when you come to Christ, you let it all pour out. Don't hold nothing back. Don't take anything back with you. Well, I'm only going to give you this part of my life because this is really the one I'm concerned about. No, no. Give it all to him. Break that alabaster jar that's in your heart and just open it up. You have to give it all. You may remember the scripture in John chapter 6. Jesus was speaking to these men, the followers that were following him at that time. He spoke to them about bread of heaven. And some had the wrong interpretation. They figured that Jesus was some kind of loaf maker. He had some kind of bread company. They said, let's go follow this guy because we'll find all the bread we need for our homes. And as soon as they found out that he was not talking about bread, earthly bread as you and I know it. But he was talking about manna from heaven, the bread of life. At that moment, the Bible says that many walk with him no longer. They said, no. There's no advantage for us here. There's nothing to gain here. There's no bread. He's talking about something we can't see, smell, or weigh. Can't take home to our families. So they walked away. And Jesus, Peter looking at this, and the rest of the boys looked at this and said, Look, Lord, they're all leaving. And he poses a very important question to them. A very important question to them. And he says this. He says, Do you want to walk too? Do you want to leave too? You want to leave too? And Peter responds, I believe, what all of us should respond, ladies and gentlemen. And this is what he said. He said, where will we go? Jesus, where will I go? We've given everything up for you. We've got no yesterday anymore. We've got nothing back there anymore. Are you asking me? Asking us if we too want to go to what? To what? Everything we ever owned, we've given to you. We've laid everything aside. There is nothing else behind us. You know, we are people who are taught in our society, in our schools, even in our homes, to always have a plan A and a plan B. Yes? How many understand that? Always. You're growing your children. Well, you have to have plan A. And plan A is your main purpose. You pursue that. Focus on it. But you always have to have for a rainy day. You have to have plan B. Just in case plan A doesn't work, plan B you jump onto. And that's good if you're going to start an earthly business. That's okay. That's good planning. You always save for a rainy day. You never spend all your finances. You always set something aside. A little nest egg they call it these days. So plan B is a good idea. But when it comes to Christ, there is no plan B. You may plant your bees anywhere you want and however many bees you want in your alphabet. But I will tell you when it comes to serving the Lord, there is only one plan and one A. And if you leave that plan A, you go back to nothing. 
Israel would complain, oh, we left Egypt, uh, uh, here we are in this desert, and we're hungry, and this and the other. They should have left us in Egypt. In Egypt, really? Surely you jest. What did you have in Egypt? You were a slave in Egypt. You were abused in Egypt. You had no residence in Egypt. You had no dignity in Egypt. You had no last name in Egypt. You had no inheritance in Egypt. Really, take me back to Egypt. To what? Ladies and gentlemen, what do you and I go back to? If you're thinking about walking away from God for some reason because you're upset about something, before you do anything, think to what you're going back to. Would I ever go back to my yesterday? Ha! Huh? If only you knew my yesterday. I've got nothing back there. Nothing to go back to. True repentance comes when you know, Jesus, I'm here. And I'm here to stay. I've got nowhere else to go. I've been serving the Lord for this long, ladies and gentlemen. When I think about the future, I'm always thinking forward. I'm never looking backward. I heard a man say one time, if you realize when you drive your car, you have a real big windshield in front of your car. Right? But your rearview mirror, how big is it? That teaches us a lot spiritually. God wants you to look forward to everything he has for you. And if ever you decide to gaze into yesterday, he's only going to allow you just a little peep. Because that's all he wants you to remember about yesterday, where he brought you from. For us in Christ, it's always from glory to glory. That woman, you would have never suggested to her. Well, now that you've met Jesus, now that you've anointed his feet, now that he told her verbally, he said, woman, your sins are forgiven. He said, okay, thank you very much. I'm going back to the streets. Foolishness. And yet there are people in this world today that will do that. Why? We need to convince them that Jesus is about moving forward, never backward. Maybe this morning you're going through something that wants to kind of encourage you to go back. Don't do it. You've got nothing back there. Nothing. You've got everything to look forward in Christ. Would you stand with me this morning? I don't know about Simon that day. I don't know if later on he called upon him and said, you know, that whole woman in the alabaster thing Jesus I changed my mind I understand exactly what you're saying you heard my every thought you saw my very own sin you even compared my sin to hers you compared her heart to mine and yeah I agree she's a lot better than me here I thought that I'm self-righteous and I can do it on my own here I am I can figure this out by myself and yet this woman came in I suppose was helpless but yet from that moment on, she became so much better than I. She was free in the heart, forgiven by the master. And Jesus, I now understand that it's not because you didn't know who it was that was touching you. You knew this woman was a bad woman. I, 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 I didn't think you did. I judged her and I judged you. 
But I know, I know now that you ignore the fact that she was a sinner because you came for sinners. She was exactly who you came for in my house and you came for me and I missed it. The whole purpose of this dinner and this time of sitting together wasn't even about the meal. It was about our souls. See, they experienced the immeasurable love of God and you can this morning as well. You only need to surrender your self-will. Realize that you can't do it on your own. I've tried. I tried so many years to change things in my own life and I couldn't. I keep going back. But the moment I realized I couldn't, I gave it to him. And he's been changing that every day. Every day. I stopped listening to public opinion, to what people say. Oh, you're a pastor now? You should have been a musician. You should have done this or the other. You should have kept going to medical school. You should have kept doing all these things. And not all of them are bad, but still, somehow, very subtly, they are all to kind of disalign or misalign you from the will of God for your life. I stopped listening to that. And I've done everything I can to train my ear to listen to the voice who leads me, my Savior. And like that victim in the water, ladies and gentlemen, I stopped fighting. I gave it all. Just like Peter that day, if Jesus was to ask me, you want to go back to where you came from? I would say just like Peter, to what, God? To what? What do I have? It was David who said, what have I in this world if not you? What have I in heaven if not you? I've got nothing, ladies and gentlemen. We are pilgrims in this world. We have nothing here. And until we begin to live our lives that way, we'll stop being so attached to the world we live in. We'll stop being attached to the habits that are building in this world. The ideals and the philosophies and all these religious things that are going on to deter the hearts of men toward God. It's when we decide, you know, I've got nothing if not Jesus. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. Join us next time for another uplifting message. If you'd like to support this ministry and the reaching out of others, you have the opportunity to give at rockofagesaog.org give.